Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. In our final installment of Chapter 2 of Living with the Unknown, on the theme of ashes, we enter a fictive world dominated by the monotony and tireless momentum of greed. In this short story from Icelandic writer Andrade Snir Magnusson, time expands and collapses as paving stones begin to dominate the physical landscape of a bleak suburb on the outskirts of Reykjavik and the mental landscape of the architect charged with their installation. I'm fascinated by time. Sometimes whole years pass, evoking only a few memories, while some moments are captured at such high resolution in my mind I could zoom in and uncover endless split-second details. One such moment is happening right now. I've just picked up a concrete paving stone, swung it with my right hand, and let it fly in the direction of a 2020 Range Rover Vogue. I watch the stone spin slowly as it approaches the driver's side window. Time is so interesting how it's possible to zoom in on a single moment. One corner of the stone is now touching the window, which is still intact. It will inevitably break, and there will be consequences. But I did not throw the stone in haste or panic. It was a well-considered decision. As I'm thinking this, it's as if the paving stone has formed a small depression in the car window, not unlike how the water in a geyser expands into a sphere at the surface before it shoots into the air. I'm not an extremist. I'm very ordinary, just to make it clear. I've never gotten into trouble with the law and never broke windows during my time at elementary school in Arbeierskoli, probably the only one in my group of friends who didn't dare do it. I'm critical, but not unfair, and sometimes I'm far too cooperative. I say, mm-hmm, to this and that, when I should be setting clear boundaries, professionally and personally. So it wasn't exactly like me to hurl a big stone at the side window of this car. Something major must have happened, and yes, a great deal has happened. The stone is now touching the window, and although it's a rather new Range Rover, and the damage could be considerable, I didn't throw the stone on a whim. I threw it trusting that the damage would be worth the cost. But because this is one of those moments I can cut down into split seconds, no harm has yet been done. The stone is perched against the window. It's traveling at high speed, but the window is still intact. There's a man just inside the window. I can zoom in on him and see how he's looking at the stone. Paving stones under the brand name Jötunsteinar, or giant stones, were first produced in Iceland in 1989 
and are still being made. They're about the size of a brick and made of durable concrete. They were used extensively around Reykjavik Harbor and later as roadstones on Östersträti, our main street. The sturdiest ones, designed for heavy traffic, were 10 centimeter thick, but the paving stone that has not yet passed through the car window is 5 centimeters thick, as it was intended for a sidewalk in front of an apartment building. I designed the apartment building, and it's probably one of the ugliest apartment buildings in the country. Six others have been built using the same design. Giant stones are directly linked to my decision to become an architect. My interest in architecture was sparked while I was working as a gardener for Reykjavik's geothermal power company when I was 19 years old. My foreman was a rather special man. In those days, we found him strict, but today we would call his behavior passive-aggressive. We didn't have that term at the time. He never wanted to be asked anything. He would explain the work to us, and then we'd tiptoe around him and try to read his thoughts instead of asking questions. One day the foreman came and picked me up from the banal task of overseeing a group of unbearable teenage boys on a summer work program. He drove me to the west end of Reykjavik and stopped at a giant, grey, clunky-looking building one of those mysterious windowless pumping stations run by the geothermal company and we can find here and there in town. Around the building was a large uncultivated lot covered with northern dock dandelions, broken glass and mayweed, and the foreman explained that the time had come to get down to business and finish paving the lot. He pointed out a 200 square meter area at the station's entrance that would need to be laid with the kind of paving stones that could withstand heavy loads. After that, a pathway and steps would need to be built at the building's back entrance. I listened, but didn't really pay him much mind. I had never laid pavers before, had never been responsible for a serious project. But then he turned to me and said, You'll have a truck and can choose four kids to help you, and you can buy all the material with this purchase order book, but only what's needed and nothing more. You have three weeks to finish the lot. I asked for the plans, but he complained that he'd been waiting for half a year for them without any sign of them being delivered, and that there was no profession more useless than architecture. What am I supposed to do then? The foreman snapped. Didn't I just tell you? But the pavers and the truckloads and all the materials. You have the purchase order book. I can't spoon-feed you everything. He assigned us a grey Toyota Hilux pickup truck, then went and fetched four boys who should have been picking weeds but were sleeping in a bush. I explained the project to them. They asked, where are the plans? We have to draft them ourselves, I told them. Next, I went to the concrete factory and after careful consideration, decided to pave the lot with giant stones in a fishbone pattern. That summer changed my life. I developed a burning interest in paving and man-made environments in general. I can call to mind the walkways out of Reykjavik's main buildings and what paving stones were characteristic of different parts of the city, depending on when the sidewalks were laid. 
I can easily envision the large concrete slabs flecked with obsidian around the University of Iceland, the small cement slabs surrounding the columns of Reykjavik City Hall, the big slabs in front of the National Theatre, the 30 times 30 centimeter blocks of Östervöllur Square, the broken and ugly 40 times 40 centimeter blocks of Leikertorg Square, and the deplorable 50-50 centimeter slabs that were laid all over the city for a time, backbreakers of around 40 kilos each. I can also call to mind the paving in other countries, in Leeds or Palermo, the concrete block sidewalks of Tribeca in New York City, the pedestrian streets of Copenhagen, so smooth they were practically moppable. I was like the masons in the Gary Larson cartoon strip with the caption, Although history has long forgotten them, Lambini and Sons are generally credited with the Sistine Chapel floor. Everyone looks up at the ceiling, get it? This happened the summer I started seeing Lilia. She took an interrail trip with her girlfriends, having bought her a ticket before we got together, and it was hard for us to say goodbye. She wandered around Europe while I worked on the paving project and came home tanned and cuter than she'd ever been before. I picked her up at the airport, and we drove the Reykjanes Peninsula Highway in the August night. We'd been separated for three weeks, and it was only natural that we would go straight home and kiss properly. Still, I simply had to make a detour to the west end of Reykjavik to show her something unexpected and remarkable. With a twinkle in her eyes, she asked, what is it? I drove onto the newly paved lot outside the pumping station and said, look, what, 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 she said, isn't it nice? What is nice, she said. I pointed at the ground, 200 square meters of giant stones in a fishbone pattern, smooth and beautiful. When she realized I was pointing at the pavement, she laughed so much I blushed. Then she kissed me. Some girls would just have left me high and dry, but not Lilia. Yes, I see it now. Well done, she said. Look closer, I said. Can't you see? The fishbone pattern is like an endless series of hearts. The following year, I attended the university in Aarhus in Denmark. I had intended to study landscape architecture, but I found the courses too narrow and decided to enroll in general architecture. It is of course ironic that I went into architecture because of a foreman who believed that all architects were idiots. It all started with giant stones, and it seems as if my interest in them is going to come full circle with the one that is now on the way through the car window. Now the window has formally broken, although the giant stone is only halfway through it. The vehicle is parked outside a block of 20 apartments that I designed. Lilia didn't know that I had drawn the blueprint for this building. I didn't flaunt it. She'd seen the building from a distance and had pointed at it and said, Yuck, who designs such disgusting things? I designed that disgusting thing. The owner of the SUV with a giant stone crashing through its window is named Birgir, a contractor and cousin of mine who happened to have built that apartment block. Birgir, called Biggi, was the son of Birgir Sr. of BJB Contractors. 
Vicky contacted me soon after I returned home from my studies. We aren't just cousins. My father and Vicky Sr. are also old schoolmates from Reykjavik Junior College. Dad hadn't been keen on my decision to study architecture, but now he was eager for me to get projects. I went to meet the father and son, Biggie Sr. and Biggie Jr., who were full of grandiose ideas. In fact, they dreamed of building an entire neighborhood. Biggie Sr. knew all about the contractors and the business, the politics and the building lots, whereas Biggie Jr. talked about the market, the demand, and ways to finance it all. Their idea was for 20 luxury apartments that would go for 30 to 40 million Icelandic crowns apiece, amounting to 600 to 800 million in total turnover, and this could potentially lead to a larger business plan for 300 apartments at 8 to 10 billion. After a meeting, we agreed that I would draft the blueprint for a block of 20 apartments. I went straight to my office, where my colleague Steppe and I toasted and talked enthusiastically about hiring more staff. 200 apartments were a fantastic prospect. I was very eager to land a good project and brag about it to one of my professors back in Copenhagen to prove that it wasn't a professional dead end for me to have moved back to Iceland. Steppe and I had just opened our architectural firm and were discussing how 21st century homes might be and what it would be like to live in one after 70 years. We brainstormed if Corbusier had known what we know today what sort of apartment building would he have designed? We looked at houses built around 1930 and wondered why such dwellings were still in demand 80 years later. We explored all sorts of scenarios. Would people work more at home in the future? Would there be more or fewer TVs? And what about garages? How many garages are actually used for cars now? Could the spaces be defined differently? And what about the sharing economy? Could we have storage rooms for things that people could share with an app that would go with this building? We got an artist to sketch a form that would distinguish the building's gable. We took great pains in the details. It was the details, after all, that made the Alvar Alto houses so long lived. No form was used for form's sake alone. The purpose determined the form. The roof tilted slightly and the balconies, which captured the sun so that everyone could enjoy them better, created an interesting pattern when viewed from a distance. Practicality served the aesthetics and vice versa. I also drew up a plan for the building lot that highlighted the environment. We used stonework, turf and rocks, and around the entrance giant stones would be laid in a fishbone pattern. It was a personal reference, just for Lilia. I showed Lilia the draft, she was impressed, and we entertained the notion of moving in ourselves. We prepared a brochure and a detailed presentation for the BJB fellows. It's a big responsibility constructing a building that serves as infrastructure for 20 individuals or families, I told them. If the home is sacred, then designing such buildings is sacred work. Buildings represent public health, community, they're the greatest monument to who we are at any given time. They're a declaration of our culture and level of education. They're the framework of our lives. The corner window facing Mount Asia orients our lives 
the door facing the sunny square sets the tone for the day. The arrangement determines how you meet your neighbors, how you meet people in the hallway, and whether they become your friends. It matters whether the hallway is dark or bright, colors, textures, everything matters. Buildings should support people, nurture them, lift their spirits. We want those who grow up in this apartment block to go out into the world and then choose to return and raise their own children here. It was all very lofty, and everyone at the meeting was extremely positive. Bicky Sr. and Jr. were elated. I went with them to give presentations to the bank and the local council, and with very positive results. Bicky Jr. was so happy that he came to the architectural firm with his wife, Kuka to ask me to design a single-family home for them. They had their eye on a particular lot and wanted to build an elegant 200-square-meter house. I sketched an idea for an interesting, airy house, which they were quite happy with. I was immersed in a proposal for a competition for a new kindergarten when Biggie Jr. called me, wanting to discuss the apartment block. He had good news. They'd secured the funding and could build ten such blocks in first phase. My heart beat fast. This was a complete game-changer for our firm. It would mean almost ten times our expected turnover for the coming years. And I would probably need to hire new staff. But Biggie went on. Some of the building lots were in another neighborhood, in a place that I had previously said would be a ridiculous site for new construction. There were no services in the vicinity, and people would have to drive a long way to get what they needed. I asked him about the lots and when I should design the new buildings. We already have your blueprint, he said. But the building I designed was for a specific location, I said. What direction will the plots be facing? We don't have much time, said Biggie. We should be able to use the blueprint without many changes. Biggie Sr. then called me and said he wanted to whittle down the design since the project had expanded so much. They'd landed a deal on windows from China that were already being shipped, so changes needed to be made. I answered professionally. Light and shadows are a fundamental element in design considerations, I said. I can't confirm anything about the windows until I know which direction the next block is going to be facing. But Bicky was in a time crunch and the market was growing, so he got his way. The windows from China wrecked havoc on the proportions. The units that were given floor-to-ceiling windows at the original location, because they faced north towards Mount Asia, now faced west onto the motorway and towards the industrial area opposite. Bicky called back in the middle of the week and told me that the dwellings had to be built with concrete, not with prefabricated wood elements. But wood was an essential part of the design, I said, otherwise the building won't be carbon neutral. The production of concrete makes up 8% of global carbon emissions. We're following standards and regulations, he replied. We're not going to bear the cost of saving the world. The wood cladding I had envisioned was out because they decided to finish the building with black traverse corrugated iron instead, and the artwork on the end wall didn't go with it. Then he came up with a new proposal for balconies made of cheap, rough, galvanized iron. I wasn't happy, to put it mildly, and explained at length 
that the balconies had more than just a morphological value, but he interrupted, If you want to express yourself morphologically, paint a picture. We're in competition with the nearby buildings. All that people are looking for is a price per square meter. I'm not going to lose a million per apartment just to satisfy your whims. We can't throw it all away on some imaginary plebs, I said. Arne, let me give you a little advice. Don't talk down to me. Don't be arrogant. I am not arrogant. Morphological value. Sorry, that's just professional lingo. An apartment block is an apartment block. A building is a building. We're going to build a good, solid building. I've built more buildings than you have designed. You'll paint yourself into a corner if you're going to be one of those... One of those... Yes, one of those architects who make people chase after some bullshit. I need to build fast and sell fast. The lot is paid for, and the interest rates are ticking. If one link of the chain fails, I'll lose everything. I'm just pointing out things that people who build buildings should know. The building is not your personal expression. It's my building. You're either with me or you're not. I was looking for an answer or a way out, but Biggie Senior beat me to the punch. By the way, I met your dad the other day. He's worried about you. He says you've been terribly angry. You need to relax a bit. He patted me in a fatherly manner and spoke to me as if I were a child. I couldn't deal with it. Icelanders can't tolerate professionalism, I murmured. I'm not giving you a warning, he said, but this is a small line of business, and if you're hard to work with, you'll find yourself very soon out of luck. I really wanted to respond to that, and now, five years later, you could say that I have responded. The giant stone has gone halfway through the window of Bicky Jr.'s car. I drove around the neighborhood, looked at the buildings, emerging from the old lava field, and saw that they were as cheap as regulational standards would permit. I didn't understand this neighborhood, why the streets were where they were, why the main road wrapped around the neighborhood, completely separating it from the surrounding nature. I didn't understand the ideology behind it. I had studied architecture, and there were always ideologies behind everything. They characterized the periods of urbanization. All around me, gray boxes rose from the ground. What was this? What was the underlying idea? I asked the interns at the firm to change the drawings to accommodate the Chinese windows. They were furious, but I said bitterly that it would do them good to see how a dream can meet icy reality, how we need to adapt to financial realities and the demands of the client. They removed the eaves and the balconies. A week later, Bicky Sr. sent me a photo of an external staircase via email, and I replied with some surprise, Does the building need a fire escape? He replied, We want more living space in relation to the area of the building. We need to sell more square meters. We need to take the stairwell out. Are you joking? People pay per square meter for apartments, and no one is willing to pay for common areas. Sorry, all the buildings in the neighborhood have external stairs. People pay for quality. People pay for good planning. A beautiful building 
a good neighborhood. Are you in this business or am I? People fight over everything that comes on the market, and some barely manage to see a place before jumping on it. That neighborhood is popular, and there's a shortage of housing. Buildings with stairwells aren't like buildings with external stairs. This is a totally different living space. Either you do it, or we'll send it to somebody else. We took the stairwell out and hung the metal staircase on the outside of the building, and in place of balconies we put an external walkway leading to the entrance of each apartment. The balcony doors were converted into main entrances, while the storage spaces in the basement were converted into additional apartments, with a little manipulation. I asked Biggie Sr. if this was an improvement, to lug groceries and maybe a baby carriage up a cold iron staircase. People today want to be left alone. They don't want to have to argue about cleaning the common areas. Common areas were a socialist idea from the 60s that failed. The last modification was to the building's gable. They decided to make it completely windowless. It should have had a glorious view over the Blue Mountains. I flew into a fit of raids, stupid crooks, that January light over the Blue Mountains stays with you for a lifetime, even in hard times. The first apartment block arose from the wastelands on the outskirts of town. I went to the construction site only once. An Icelandic foreman was directing a group of Eastern European migrant workers who appeared to be living in shipping containers on the lot. I was ashamed of the building's design, but it seemed to be keeping in with the neighborhood, incomprehensible, unambitious, and poorly conceived. Those lots didn't appear to be subject to any particular consideration in terms of light or open areas. The parking lots were placed where I would have put gardens, the balconies faced the wrong direction, the playgrounds were barren without any shelter, and the main roads cut the neighborhoods off from nearby natural treasures. I was told that the municipality was in a hurry to sell lots as quickly as possible to fund a soccer stadium. I couldn't point to a single building I would have liked to have designed. A few months later, we were invited to a housewarming party for friends who had just moved into a semi-detached house in that same neighborhood. I deliberately took a different route so that Lilia wouldn't see the apartment block. We found our friend's place. A diligent carpenter had bought the lot and sold them only the shell of the house. Using a 30-year-old blueprint drawn by an engineer, he built the mainframe, added windows, and sold it to them unfinished. I had a hard time celebrating with them. Yes, awesome. Congratulations. We came home late that night. I lay awake, and Lilia held me. Oh, my poor thing. You take everything so seriously, she said. I know. Did you find their house ugly? It was so awful I could hardly stand being there. Did you see how it was placed in relation to the lot? Did you notice that the garage stole all the sunlight with the windowless wall and the living spaces were dark and narrow? Did you see how it joined with the yard, almost directly behind the TV? Did you get a feel for the acoustics? They seemed happy. Isn't that what matters, that they are happy? Is my job meaningless then? Did I get a degree in architecture just to be at odds with everything? Imagine if you were a proofreader and the texts you were checking was chock full of mistakes 
and no one noticed them but you. And nobody really cared. And everybody just let all the mistakes go past. The new neighborhoods, they're just full of grammatical errors. I can hardly name a building erected in the last 10 years that I find truly important. Our generation is failing. We're destroying the Reykjavik city center, destroying the highlands, the climate, the healthcare system, and the educational system. We're building ugly roads. Everything is ugly. Everything is pointless. Lilia held me silently. You need to relax, she said finally. Your dad's worried about you. I didn't see the apartment block with my naked eyes until after it was built, and I didn't attend the ceremony when it was opened up to potential buyers. I saw a photo of it in a magazine ad. The Chinese factory windows glinted. The stairwell was bleak and faced north. The railing along the new external walkway and the aluminum cladding made the building look like a prison. My name was on the ad. New Luxury Apartments by Arne Axelsson, architect. I threw the paper away before Lilia came down for breakfast. The apartments all sold immediately. I was disappointed. It didn't seem to matter to anyone what the building looked like. Most buyers got loans of 90%, so Biggie and Biggie probably got the 600 million they were aiming for. They invited me out to dinner and toasted our successful business partnership. They were very happy with me. I was resourceful and my changes to the design were very efficacious in terms of construction costs. The market seems happy with it, said Biggie Jr. The bank is satisfied. I said I wasn't sure I had time for 200 more apartments. They said that loading me with extra work wasn't in the plan. They had a blueprint now that suited them and the market very well. With this project, a new standard had been set in construction speed and efficiency, all I had to do was position the building on a new lot, sign the papers, and send them an invoice for 40% of the initial design cost. You're selling content now, said Biggie Jr. This is, of course, a low-end job. Later, we'll do something crazy high-end, and you can have all your ambitions there. Still, you can be happy that we've set the trend. The other contractors are still in the starting blocks with their own Artney house. Arne House. Yes, your design is called Arne House. I would have called it BJB House, but the industry likes to name buildings after their architect, like a Sigvaldi House or a Högna House. You're becoming a brand. It was a triumph how we got it all approved. I felt sick, but didn't say anything. I had my partner Steppe adjust the designs. One evening I found him in the conference room, scribbling away at the blueprints. What are you doing, I asked. You don't want to know. Tell me. I'm still whittling down. For BJB? Yes, we've gotten hold of three more lots. I looked over the design. Still whittling down? More than last time? Yes. I looked again at the design. The building was a disaster. What do we call this? The Arne House, Steppe said. My temper flared. Never say that again. Sorry, Arne, but what are you asking? What's this style? What do we call it? It isn't functionalism. Steppe scratched his head. 
What's the name of our period in architecture? Where are we in a historical context? Why was this lot chosen? Why is the building situated that way? Why are there three staircases? Why is there no window facing the Blue Mountains? Can you explain that? You think too much. All buildings can be placed somewhere in history. The turf and stone cottage, the Breitholt apartment blocks, the Norwegian timber frame house, neoclassical, functionalist, postmodern. But what is this? Why is this building like it is, and not otherwise? There's no ideology behind it, said Steve. Build fast and cheap, sell fast and expensive. When they whittled down our design, the building became 20% cheaper, but housing prices have gone 20% up since then. It was possible to build the original dream block based on the price people have paid for the apartments. The difference is purely profit for Biggie and Biggie. Probably, we could have built a dream apartment block with all the endowments, artwork on the end wall, wooden cladding. Probably, he said, it would have lasted a hundred years. This is just pathetic, I said. They must be making a hundred million per building, but we're still whittling it down. What a deal, earning a lifetime's income from 20 apartments that took half a year to build. Most of my dad and grandfather's generation had no money. They built their houses themselves, had them designed and then put them up with their bare hands with help of family and friends. Even the 12-story apartment blocks erected around the 1960s were built by trade unions, printers and teachers. They did the construction themselves and put care into their work. They were building homes for themselves. BJB first apartment block, on the other hand, was built by a team of Polish migrant workers. For the next block, it was a few Poles, but mainly Romanians, because they were cheaper. The third time, there were a few Romanians, but the majority were Moldovians. The workers were increasingly being brought in from poorer countries further east. The contractors showed them no respect, and they themselves, in turn, did not care about what they were building. Biggie and Biggie, they didn't care. The town council doesn't seem to care. Nobody seems to care. I needed a concept to understand what we were doing. I needed to see my work in a historical context. In my studies, my favorite architects and those who introduced new schools of thought and new concepts abroad, as well here in Iceland, had labels. But who was I? I had learned that architects give shape to the dominant ideology of the time, the philosophies, ideals, and new scientific discoveries, and put them into permanent form, whether in marble, wood, or metal and glass. The Breitholt district of Reykjavik, cheap, high-quality housing built for baby boomers, was developed in line with a well-conceived social ideology that went back to the 1930s. The workers' blocks on Ringbreit Road, built around that time, were the most modern apartments in the world for the poorest people in Europe. When the functionalist and futuristic ideas of the Bauhaus school were unfolding in Germany, many Icelanders were still living in turf and stone cottages. With the arrival of functionalism to Iceland, which came almost straight from Bauhaus, the Northern Miri neighborhood was built, and many who moved there took a leap into the future, 
Skipping 800 years of European architecture, Turf House to Bauhaus was the name of my final thesis in Aarhus. I understood the architect to be the influencer of societies, manifesting change and progress, the one who designs the outlines of society. The tangible world is made by us. I looked over the neighborhood that was now under construction and tried to get my head around it. What ideology prevailed now? The giant stone is still on its way through the window, moving very slowly, so slowly I can see the expression of the people inside the car. To Biggie's right is Gugga, his wife. She's a bit wide-eyed and open-mouthed, as if someone had just thrown a paving stone through the window of her car. The high-end project Biggie Jr. promised me had just arrived on my desk, a project that would satisfy my ambition. It was the house he had been planning for himself and his family, but the design had swelled a bit. Biggie Jr. came to me after the fourth apartment block was finished, a good deal more confident than last time. He was in a light mood, and his clothes were more expensive than when the first block was built. He came with his wife, Gugga. I knew her. She grew up in the same neighborhood as me. She was called Gugga Truck when I was in elementary school. She was no truck. She was rather delicate and pretty, but her family had just moved from the rural village of Röverhöp in northern Iceland, and her dad shuttled her to school in a huge truck. He only had to bring her once, and the name stuck with her throughout elementary school. Dickie Jr. and his wife had great ambitions for their single-family home. In my original draft, the house was just over 200 square meters, but now they wanted it to be 650 square meters. It was to be built on an oceanfront lot, and they'd just bought and demolished the house that had been there. We hope we can make a house that will be featured in Dezine, said Guga. She was very sincere about this. Maybe she was eager to show that she was successful. It must have really hurt her, having to be called Gugga Truck throughout elementary school. This should make up for the fact that the block did not turn out as you requested, Biggie said cheerfully. For the next few months, I was in constant contact with them. As apartment blocks 7 and 8 were going through the municipality's approval process, Biggie Jr. kept me informed of the details so I could adjust the blueprint to the lots. Meanwhile, Gukka called me to go over concepts and materials for their new house. Biggie called me that morning to go over the seventh apartment block one more time. He had learned from his experience with the other buildings how to be more cost-effective. They could, for example, reduce the number of electrical connections by 10% or use plastic parquet floors instead of wooden ones. Plastic is much more durable for families with children, said Biggie. The bathrooms should be painted instead of tiled. Buyers should have the freedom to have a wardrobe in the bedroom instead of a closet. One run-through with me for 15,000 kroners per hour would spare him maybe two million in construction costs. Later that day, Gukka called to discuss some rare tiles for the bathrooms that needed to be special ordered from South America, 
and also how to position the bathtub in the third bathroom so that it would look over towards Mount Sneifelsjökull. She asked if I could go with her to Denmark to choose a special faucet and then to Italy to have a kitchen custom built for the house, all expenses paid, of course. For the vestibule, she wanted custom-cut stone from Morocco that she'd seen in a magazine and leather tiles from Spain on the walls to improve the house's acoustics. She also had a special wood in mind for the floor, a rare Asian variety, and asked if I knew where it could be ordered. But you have children. Isn't the plastic pocket floor what you want? It's better for families. She laughed, finding me very funny. As I was writing up invoices, I noticed that I'd spent more time on their bathroom than I had on the entire apartment block, and most of that time had gone into cutting out elements that two biggies felt were unnecessary expenditures. I had designed all kinds of homes, single-unit houses, townhouses, apartment buildings, and I was aware that there was a certain growing inequality in our society, but this was the first time I had the same client for such extremely different buildings. I was like a thief. I had gone through the apartment block and practically emptied it. I reduced the wirings, thinned out the walls, installed cheaper doors, went over everything with thinning shears. Meanwhile, Bicky and Gukka wanted to be able to control the lights, heating and curtains in their new home with an app in their phones. I'd never seen my job so clearly. I was a cat's paw, transferring quality from one person to another. As I was gutting the apartment block, real estate prices were rising, and in the end only a skeleton remained. That's what was left when the apex predator, the contractor and the investor had eaten their fill. And suddenly I realized the context. The apartment block wasn't a building but an ideological system specially designed to transfer wealth from one person to another. There was nothing remarkable about this block, no reason why Biggie was better at building it than anyone else. The poorest workers in Europe could build it easily. There was no reason that Biggie, a temporary middleman, should be allowed to walk away with a hundred million in profit. My apartment block was specifically designed to make one person very wealthy off the backs of 20 families. Everything that could have been in it had been stuffed into a 30-square-meter bathroom or a gold-plated kitchen in a house with a view over the Sneifelsjökull glacier. I serve the prevailing ideology and give it form. I create the space. If society is based on inequality then it's I who make inequality visible. I plunder the apartment block of the common people while stuffing as much luxury as I can into a 650-square-meter villa and create an untouchable elite of which Biggie and Gukka Truck will be members as soon as I get them into Dezine magazine. I'm a tool. In the Middle Ages, I would have designed castles, servant quarters, and moats, in the Soviet Union, it would have been residential buildings and Stalin's palace of culture and science. In Egypt, pyramids. In Sweden, I would have 
designed public housing and concrete brutalist cultural institutions. In Germany, it was Albert Speer who actualized these ideals of the Nazis. In the United States, Raymond Hood designed the Rockefeller Center and Yamasaki designed the World Trade Center, but he also designed the Pruitt Igu complex in St. Louis, which became a breeding ground for unhappiness and despair, like Block P in Greenland, where people were piled up when villages were emptied all over Greenland in the interest of efficiency and colonial kindness. I think I became quite depressed around that time. Lily and I were starting to drift apart. We had to pick up something at the Smaralind shopping mall, and I told her I didn't want to go. We need to buy a present for your father, she said. You're lucky I'm going with you. We drove around the Reykjanes Highway, and I looked at the road, the interchanges, the rows of cars, the structures that had sprung up all around in recent years, and I saw it all as just a shell. The Smaralind Mall looks like a penis from above, I said. Yes, he said. That's an old joke. Do you think the architect was in revolt? Do you think he knew in his heart that the mall was badly designed? A lousy idea? I find that unlikely, she said. The first suburbs were built to bring people out of dirty cities and closer to nature. Folks were looking for beautiful green spaces. This ideology was based on a dream of a healthy society with access to nature and outdoors. But here, a suburb has been built without any sign of nature. The local government didn't want to lose good building sites to greenery. Inside of a forest or pond or garden at the center of the neighborhood, there's a shopping mall that looks like a penis from above. They've arranged gray boxes around the mall. That's the ideology. People should be consumers. They should owe to the bank. They should keep the economy going, settle for things stripped of quality, and provide profit to a small group of rich people. That's the zeitgeist of our times, utter futility. People should shop until they're fat, depressed, and sick, and then let the pharmaceutical companies and private hospitals take them in as raw materials for further profit. Lilia listened silently, then sighed heavily. You don't need to teach me anything. I design inequality. I design buildings for neighborhoods that are made to create social isolation, increase private car traffic and consumption. I'm destroying my city and destroying the earth. The world we see is not the whole world. Everything has been whittled away so that someone can sit in a gold toilet, if not here, then somewhere in the world. And it's all built with raw materials plundered from the earth, which we're stealing from our children. Just let me out here, said Lilia. I'll have my mom pick me up. You go buy your dad's present. I'm sorry, I said. Just let me out, she said. I let her out at the bus stop and drove off in silence. Biggie called me and asked if I could meet him at apartment block number seven. The building is going on the market. It's time to get a photo of you in front of an Arnehaus. And I have a PR person who's going to send photos of our villa to Dezin. I drove aimlessly around the neighborhood in search of the building. But it wasn't hard to find. It pained me to see the balconies 
the corrugated iron, to think about the people who would take a 40-year loan to live there. The building clearly provided no shelter from the north wind. I pitied the children who would grow up there. Outside, workers were paving the lot. A pallet of giant stones stood there in front of the building. They had begun laying the stones, but not in a fishbone pattern. I stopped the car and walked over to them, trying to explain that the pattern should be different. They didn't understand me and obviously didn't care. Why should they care? I took one of the giant stones and was going to show them the pattern, how it was actually heart-shaped, but then thought it would be inappropriate. There was no heart in this project. I was holding the stone when Biggie Jr. drove up. It was so logical to release it into the air, letting gravity take it on its own natural course. And now, as it is passing through the window and licking the tip of Biggie's nose, I can't say what will happen next. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Ben Solitiano. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.